from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Welcome from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. On the legislature today, a conversation about West Virginia's coal industry and the forecast ahead. We'll be joined by members of the House Energy Committee in just a moment. But first, some highlights from floor action today at the legislature. Joining me now are senior reporter Dave Mistich and reporter Emily Allen. Thank you both for being here. Now, Senate concurrent resolution was the central debate today in the Senate. This is a resolution asking for a convention of states for the purpose of proposing an amendment to the U.S. Constitution to limit congressional terms of office. Uh, but Dave, there, were, there was about an hour of going back and forth between supporters and opponents of this resolution because of the potential implications of calling a constitutional convention. That's right. Tell us more. And you know, I guess I should get into what Article Five of the U.S. Constitution is, which allows this convention. That's of That's right, right. And I'll walk you through exactly, you know, how the U.S. Constitution can be amended. There's two routes actually. Step one is is the proposal of of a constitutional amendment, um, and there's two options for that. I one think we would, have a graphic. We can go to that. Go ahead. And, and one option would be for two thirds of the of the House and Senate um, to of, of the of the United States House and Senate um, to agree to amend the Constitution, or two thirds of states could call upon this convention to happen. Of course, that's just step one, the proposal. Step two is the ratification of that amendment, which would be three fourths of state legislatures approving that, or three fourths of states at this at a constitutional convention ratifying the proposed amendment. So very complicated process to get there. Article five, uh, what we're talking about in this case is this constitutional convention, so. Okay, and there was back and forth. Tell us a little bit about each of the arguments. That's right, so, so the Democrats, um, you know, focus mostly on the idea that if we call this constitutional convention, would we just be addressing one issue? Uh, of course, Senate concurrent resolution four, as you mentioned, deals with term limits in Congress. Uh, Senator Mike Romano, he's a Democrat from Harrison County. He argued that the, there's the possibility that this could open it up to other issues. What's going to happen if this goes through? And we're close. This makes us very close to having an Article 5 convention. Who knows? Who, who will be in charge at that time by the time it comes about? You know, the pendulum swings back and forth. Who knows who will be in charge? Who knows what provisions of our Constitution will be put at risk? And when it comes out, don't think that there won't be billions of dollars to try to per persuade our states one way or another on any particular issue. It also may be one extremely popular issue cobbled together with a bunch of other changes to our Constitution. Nobody knows. And the senators who speak to it, including me, don't really know. 
and Dave, several Republicans spoke for the bill. That's right. For the resolution. And they did concede that there are a lot of unknowns, but we should be having this conversation. We should take this risk. We'll hear now from Senator Mike Azinger from Wood County about his thoughts on this constitutional convention. Article 5 is a great thing. It's a check on tyranny. It's basically saying, look, we have no other recourse here. If you look at what's happening in Virginia right now, one of the, one of the most beautiful displays of our republic, of, of uh, organic democracy, happened in Virginia this week. The people rose up. But so what if the people ra ra rise up and, and the tyrants, that I like to call them sometimes, that are in office still say, I don't care. I don't care. This is an avenue, a tool that the founders gave us because they were students of history and they know how easily uh, tyrants rise, authoritarian governments rise, and that's what this is for. And again, this this uh, Senate concurrent resolution passed the Senate on a twenty to zero or twenty to ten vote. Excuse me. Um, Senators Baldwin, Woeful, Jeffries, and Hardesty, all Democrats, joined the Republicans. Um, but you know, as this debate rolled along. Uh, there was uh, all these questions about the unknowns. What could happen if this were to were to take place? If we were to go along with this, I should mention that West Virginia, if it, if it passes this, if the House, you know, approves this as well, would become the 16th state. We would need 38 of 50 states to to open up this convention. We'll take a look in, in closing this discussion uh, with an interaction between Minority Leader uh, Roman Prezioso and Senate Judiciary Chair Charlie Trump. If all the states get together and all the representatives get together and other states aren't bound by their resolution for term limits, and they're not given in specific instructions, they would be allowed, obviously, to uh, present their concern, and then we would, we would all vote on it. Well, our, our delegate then would be uh, you know, bound to vote on whatever issue that came up. Well, I don't know bound to vote. I think a legislature of a state could pass law that limits the authority of a delegate to such a convention to vote in one fashion or another. I, for instance, I'd say, say it's a convention to address congressional term limits. I think the legislature of West Virginia could pass a law that says our delegate may not vote for uh, a limitation on uh, terms of office for members of Congress that is less than 12 years or that is more than 20 years. I think those sorts of inst binding instructions could be made by any state that chose to do it. But we're not giving, we're not saying what the limits are in this, in this resolution. This resolution doesn't address it at all. It, it uh, calls for the conversation on the subject, if you will. And then that uh, resolution passed and now it's over in the House. Um, uh, Emily, tell us what is on the activities calendar here tomorrow. Yep, tomorrow is the all kinds are welcome here. Uh, sort of lobbying day, a bunch of progressive, mostly uh, groups that are focused on inclusiveness will be there. Most notably, uh, West Virginia Fairness. They're huge proponents of the West Virginia the Fairness Act to prohibit discrimination against members of West Virginia's LGBTQ plus community. Uh, right now we have a clip from Andrew Schneider, Executive Director of Fairness West Virginia. It's just a sort of painstaking process of continuing to educate and talk to legislators 
um, in, a, in a fairly short period of time as, as, as a result of the 60-day session. Um, but tomorrow will be a big day for us because it's the only day of the legislative session when so many people from all over the state come together to help us lobby their, their, their elected representatives. Next, part two of our focus on West Virginia's major energy sectors. Tonight, a focus on coal. House Energy Chairman Bill Anderson and Energy Committee member Mike Caputo will join reporter Brittany Patterson for that discussion in just a moment. But first, we begin with a visit Brittany made to the state's most state-of-the-art coal-burning power plant. Located just outside of Morgantown, West Virginia, the Longview Coal-Fired Power Plant is one of the most advanced, newest, and cleanest burning coal plants in the world. Longview Power CEO and President Jeff Keffer points at the towering three-building complex. The second building is the boiler building. It's 16 stories tall. That's the boilers in there. That's where the action occurs, where the coal is spewed in, it gets burned, uh, very, very hot temperatures and turns the water that's going up through the boiler tubes into steam, which we use in the steam turbine. Construction finished on the plant in 2011. Retrofits were completed in 2015. Keffer says the technology used at Longview is state-of-the-art. While many aging coal-fired power plants in West Virginia and across the country are struggling to stay competitive, Longview runs 24-7. Longview isn't owned by a power utility. It's a merchant plant or independent plant and sells power directly to regional grid operator PJM Interconnection. We're able to produce electricity more efficiently than any other coal plant in our region, the PJM region. We're able to do it uh, at lower cost than just about any other fossil fuel. That includes gas-fired plants. And yet, in 2019, Longview announced it was going to diversify how it produces electricity. So we wanted to combine with our clean coal plant the benefits of having a large gas-fired plant and then the benefits of having a renewable solar plant to that as well. A 1,200-megawatt gas plant and 70-megawatt solar farm will sit adjacent to the coal plant. Keffer says branching out makes economic sense. On the solar side, there are companies, often most large companies, Facebook, Google, others, that have um, set uh, corporate objectives of obtaining all their power from re renewable sources. Um, they're willing to pay you know, significantly more for that power. Keffer says building a gas plant also made business sense, given the region's abundance of natural gas. Natural gas production in the Appalachian Basin has grown rapidly since 2012 and is projected to grow exponentially over the next few decades. Neighboring states have taken advantage of low-priced gas by building gas plants. West Virginia is still primarily burning coal, and although power prices in West Virginia are still lower than many states, the Mountain State has gone from having some of the cheapest electricity in the country to being in the middle of the pack. And as the nation's coal plants age, Keffer says their operating and maintenance costs will rise. While he understands the need to support coal, he says consumers will pay. We try to keep those plants running, partly because of employment issues, partly because of uh, those who extract coal from the ground and mine it. But at the same time, we're not doing anybody any favors, particularly ratepayers for the utilities, paying the costs 
of the losses those plants are incurring right now. Brian Lego analyzes coal trends for West Virginia University's Bureau of Business and Economic Research. Uh, 2020, I think, will end up being a, a, a weaker year. He says, despite efforts by the Trump administration to reduce regulations on the coal industry, all signs point to the domestic coal market continuing to struggle. Domestic markets have essentially shriveled in size because of the what's happened with respect to the uh, electric power sector, transitioning to gas, uh, renewables, all sort, uh, other fuel sources beyond coal. So that's really changed the, the whole shape and size of the, of the coal industry's uh, performance. 2019 marked some very high-profile coal bankruptcies, including of Black Jewel. The West Virginia-based company suddenly declared bankruptcy in July. More than a thousand miners had their paychecks clawed back. Dozens of miners spent nearly two months blocking a loaded coal train in Harlan County, Kentucky, in protest. Last year, coal companies Blackhawk and Murray Energy also sought bankruptcy protection. Went in there and mined that coal. Now they want their money. Bill Rainey with the West Virginia Coal Association says, despite those setbacks, he's confident West Virginians will continue mining coal. The domestic need for uh, steam coal to make electricity is diminished. Uh, still there, and we still got the best coal in the world here in West Virginia. So, so we got the best coal miners, the best coal, the best coal mine managers. So we got all that equation put together, but it, it's still, it, it, they're still struggling. Uh, and it's because of the market sensitivity that we have. But markets could be our problem this year. Lego at WVU says since 2017, West Virginia has benefited from overseas market demand for metallurgical or steel coal. But that demand is cooling off. As far as the met coal market is concerned, um, we, we've seen a, a decline in prices, and that price is uh, a reflection of the, the state of demand, how it's starting to, you know, come off of these hot sugar highs that we had in 17 and 18. So things are coming down and recalibrating, I think is the, the word you want to use. In recent months, coal operators, including Blackhawk and Copperglow, have closed or idled mines in the region. Preliminary federal data show while employment was mostly stable from 2018 to 2019, coal production in West Virginia fell about 25 percent last year. And in the last decade, employment has fallen by more than one third. For the legislature today, I'm Brittany Patterson. And good evening, I'm Brittany Patterson. Joining us now are delegates Bill Anderson, chair of the House Energy Committee, and House Energy Committee member, Delegate Mike Caputo. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here, thank you. So I wanna start by giving you both a chance to talk a little bit about what we just saw. I think for decades, coal and West Virginia have been synonymous. Um, what do you realistically see as the future for the coal industry in West Virginia? Delegate Anderson, let's start with you. I, I see the coal industry, uh, quite frankly, continuing to struggle in, in the near future, but it's, it fills a very important component in, in the energy mix in this state uh, because it is still primarily responsible for carrying the base load in this state. Uh, we, we have developing uh, renewables in, in both uh, the um, wind power and, and beginning to get some a movement towards solar, some solar generation, but the bottom line, these things vary upon on the weather and the availability to generate the power. Coal was still, not to the extent maybe historically in the past, but still in the near future, 
be the primary base load carrier in this state. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with my chairman. I, I think coal will always play a major role in this nation's energy mix, let alone West Virginia's energy mix. My hopes is that it is stabilized and will remain where it's at for a few generations ahead. Uh, yeah, these are still great jobs. Uh, they, they, they create a lot of uh, income to the communities in which the miners work and, and mine the coal and the power plant jobs and everything that goes along with it. So my hope is that it is, will stabilize. I, I agree with my chairman, it will never be what it once was. Uh, there's a very diversified energy market today, uh, several sources of energy, but none can compete with the base load that coal creates. And I, don't, I think if we uh, would shut the coal industry down today, we'd see a lot of brownouts and a lot of blackouts, quite frankly, because I don't think the other alternative energy sources could supply the grid to keep this country uh, going. Sure. Well, I guess given the understanding from you both that coal is never going to get back to the levels that we've seen in the past, uh, what do you see as the role of your body, your committee, as, and your role as legislators to ensure that we're not only protecting the miners that are currently working in this industry, but we're also ensuring that these sites are adequately cleaned up? And I ask because these bankruptcies that we saw last year, they were really intense, and we're talking a lot of liabilities. What role do, does the West Virginia legislature play? I, I believe the legislature ha has a role um, to ensure that the <clears throat> bonding requirements uh, that the coal mines uh, put up for the mining operations are, are sufficient uh, to pay for the reclamation cleanup if, if these companies uh, go bankrupt. Yeah. yeah, we cannot leave the taxpayers holding the bag for bankrupt companies. Uh, it, it's, it's a sad state of affairs. Many companies, you know, were, that were major producers in, in our backyard here, quite frankly, has filed for bankruptcy. Hopefully the bonds are sufficient and those mines that do eventually close will be cleaned up without uh, uh, some help from taxpayers. That's my hope. So. Yeah. I want to turn now to an announcement that Governor Jim Justice made during his State of the State related to Ramaco coal um, and this idea of turning coal into coal fiber. You know, this is something that we have heard before here in West Virginia and other coal producing states that there are alternative uses to the coal we use to burn for electricity. Um, and a lot of it hasn't materialized. So I'm, I'm eager to get your impressions of the governor's announcement. Delegate? Oh, I'm I'm happy about the governor's announcement. I, I hope there's a considerable substance to that. And uh, I know West Virginia University uh, is extensively doing coal research. Uh, we've we've ex been examining coal sequestration for when we burn coal to sequester the uh, uh, some of the contaminants from that. But uh, I. I'm more interested in learning more about the details uh, of this. Uh, I, I do believe that uh, the announcement that uh, by the governor that maybe we're looking at some Chinese investment in, in this, um, if we can get past the uh, trade disagreements we have at the national level with China and get to a more stable business cycle with them, if they are willing to make investments and we can make advancements and create new products, that will uh, keep our coal miners working and and uh, and, and more more importantly I think for the future of coal diversify the uh, the economy relative to the use of coal I think that can only be positive for the future of the state yeah 
Brittany, I'll, I'll be nice and say I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, you know, I've been around this industry for 42 years. It's virtually all I have ever done. Alternative uses to coal is not a new novel concept idea. Uh, you know, there's been coal to liquids proposed, there's been coal to carbon fiber proposed throughout my entire career in, in this industry, but unfortunately none of that has ever come to fruition. You know, I hope that the governor's uh, uh, remarks were not just words. Uh, I would fully support that. I think every member of, of both houses would fully support that and would help in any way we can to create uh, more jobs for, for our natural resource here in West Virginia. But again, until I see some bricks and mortar being laid, till I see uh, uh, people on the job and, and coal being sent to those facilities, I will remain cautiously optimistic, but very hopeful. I don't, I don't want to be doom and gloom here. It was something I would welcome, absolutely welcome. But, you know, I've, I've heard this for many, many years, and I hope this time it's true. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about some of the legislative action that this body took last year in relation to the industry. Um, we saw a tax break for the Pleasance Power Plant um, to the tune of about $12 million, $12.5 million. And last year we also saw a severance tax cut. Um, and both of those were billed as ways to support the industry, create jobs, and really boost production and employment. And I'm wondering, you know, having a few months and, and almost a year out of this, how do you think it's working? Is it working? Were those effective uses of our money? Uh, I believe they were. I supported them. Uh, of course, the Pleasant Power Station is one county above Wood County. I have constituents that work at the Pleasant Power Station. I think it is important to uh, maintain the jobs, not only these people's jobs, uh, but we're in a competitive situation with other states. Uh, Ohio has a little or no severance taxes. We had a 5% severance tax. Uh, we have an industry that is struggling, and this was an opportunity to stabilize that industry. It, it creates an opportunity for the, uh, the, the governor's announcement maybe to begin to bear some fruits and, and as we transition and diversify the coal portion of our economy. But, but uh, I think more importantly, um, it, uh, it, it across the state, it, it's more than just uh, some jobs at Pleasant Power Station. It's more than just some coal mining jobs. Uh, it is all kinds of businesses. Uh, it, it's jobs in the, in the rail system, moving the coal to market, or on the barges on the river, or, or suppliers, whether it's suppliers uh, of thing, use things that are utilized in the mine. Uh, it, it gets down to the people that repair the railroad cars in, in the different places. So the, the success of the coal industry in this state or the stabilization of the coal industry stabilizes jobs throughout the economy of this state and gives people hope for the future. It generates tax revenue for the state that helps provide services to communities. Yeah. Well, I supported both pieces of that legislation as well. Uh, the Pleasance Power Plan, I definitely think we did the right thing. We heard from the folks in that community, and, and really uh, that place was on life support from the evidence that we've seen, and I, I think we had to do what we could. We made a $12 investment. We kept a lot of people working. And we also, there's a million tons of coal that comes from, I think, from the McElroy mine in the northern panhandle, which is in our borders, that was uh, uh, shipped to that facility. So we had that at risk as well. As far as the severance tax goes, 
I hope we did the right thing. I voted for that. At the end of the day, Murray still filed bankruptcy. Don't know uh, if it would have been worse or if it would have made any difference. But, you know, we can only look at the evidence that we have. And, and if we think the state has to make an investment to keep those jobs and keep the economy viable in there, the, the chairman talked about all the, the jobs that this industry supports. I mean, we can take that clear down to the corner store. I mean, you know, it, it, it is, it's massive. So, you know, we have an obligation to try. With Without giving away the farm and, and, and costing taxpayers, you know, uh, um, a lot of money, we have an obligation to do that. Uh, I, I just, you know, we can't regulate our way out of things sometimes. A lot of people think reducing health and safety is a savior, but I, you know, respectfully disagree with that. But we do have to uh, move in a direction we believe will we'll keep the economy going. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, you know, to push back on that just a little bit, you know, we cut severance taxes, we make these investments, and then the state has to figure out where to get that money. And given the trajectory of the in industry, I just guess, you know, should money like that, should those investments be made for diversification in the few seconds we have left? I think we, we are moving to try to encourage diversification of the economy in this state. Um, as I mentioned before, West Virginia University is in, important for the, conducting some of the research that may well uh, allow us to diversify. I think our technical community colleges will, will have a role in the diversification of the economy of the state in training uh, the students to, to fill the jobs of the future as our economy evolves. Yeah, in just a few seconds. I think left. we have to do both. I think we have to, to keep our industry going as well, but we must look at diversification. That's the future of West Virginia. Yeah, well, gentlemen, thank you both very much for coming on the show this evening. Thank but you very much. Thank you very much for having us. And we'd like to keep the conversation about energy and the environment going. From renewable energy to water quality issues to bills related to coal or gas, what questions do you have? We want to hear from you. Go to our website, wvpublic.org, and let us know. Your question might be selected as the topic of a news report during this legislative session. I'm Brittany Patterson. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us this evening, and have a great night.